my top 50 films of the decade. Which is actually quite easy to put together in the end. Now, I'm not going to do much on 50, as 50 in depth wouldn't fit into a two hour show. So, over the earlier parts of the list, it really will just be that, uh, with little time spent on the films and gradually monitoring time as I go along, uh, more and more time towards the top end the pointy end of the list that was why i've played that track from the soundtrack to twin peaks the return undoubtedly the tv moment of the decade and also one of my films of the decade but i'm i thought it was a little bit disjointed to include it in my main list so there you go that was um one of the highlights artistically of the decade for me something that changed both cinema and TV, Twin Peaks A Return. But my list gets underway, and I'm just going to pile through for a while. At number 50, Margaret by Kenneth Lonergan, who turns up later in the list and had a much, much bigger film uh, with Manchester by the Sea a couple of years back, and a lot of Oscar nominations, etc. His film Margaret nearly killed his career, he, uh, he made it, it was a very difficult film, and spent the next six years trying to edit it into something that was actually broadcastable. As far as I know, it received an, a release that was basically uh, one broadcast on a flight from London to LA. That was the full extent of its release. It was taken off of him, and I think Martin Scorsese and someone else edited it into a releasable format. He said that it was short and that he needed to add to its two-and-a-half-hour runtime. If you watch it, another half an hour would be terrible. But that often happens with uh, films that they say are too long anyway. They've left out enough that it actually improves them by being even longer. I don't know. That cut may be out there somewhere. But Margaret's now getting the kind of kudos it deserves. It's a story of Anna Paquin who... um, basically plays a teenager who thinks she's an adult and goes through uh, a very harrowing situation where she causes the death of an old lady and ends up blaming the bus driver who she distracted for it as she is both in her head an adult but has the uh, younger person's inability to take any responsibility for bad actions so um it's it's a very difficult film to watch. Anna Paquin gives an Oscar-worthy performance, my favourite of hers. She also turns up later in the list. But she's the most annoying central character I've ever seen in the movies. Every time that anyone challenges her on anything, including at school, she loses her mind and goes for the jugular. It's a difficult film to watch because it is continually this clash with her her treating her mum like garbage, her treating everyone around her like garbage, and her persecution of uh, the bus driver. Um, but it is a brilliant film, and it's a unique film. It's got some heavyweight actors involved as well, and I thought it was great. Uh, 2011, that came out. Uh, number 49, uh, Australia is really showing itself to be uh, a bastion of quiet yet brilliant sci-fi movies I saw Upgrade again recently. That's a terrific one that came out last year to Little Fanfare. But Predestination was just amazing. At number 49, uh, an astonishing film um, featuring Ethan Hawke, but it's Sarah Snook. 
who is just spectacular in it, an incredible role, unique, and you can't really talk about the film without giving away some amazing twists. And they're not twists for the sake of the story. They pose very interesting psychological and biological questions. It's a true sci-fi masterpiece. That 49 came out in 2017. At 48 in my 50 best films of the decade, and I'll be going more into depth on these as we progress, Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, I've chosen three Marvel films in my list, and the reason I've chosen all of them is because they represented something, and they represented something that hadn't previously happened in the Marvel Universe and was a new interesting high. For me, there was a a grubby middle patch of the Marvel films around the age of Ultron and all of those where it was all getting a bit heavy and po-faced and the movie qualities had long since dropped off from the highs of Iron Man and so on. Even the subsequent Iron Man films were dreadful. And Guardians of the Galaxy came bursting out the gate with something new up its sleeve. Not only was it sci-fi and and not staged on Earth like all the other films were often staged or in some mythical Norse wonderland, it was funny. It was a really sharp comedy. And I think other films in the Marvel Universe had had humour in them, say Iron Man. But that was because Robert Downey Jr.'s performance was so witty and he was so sharp. It wasn't a comedy, it was just that he was very funny. In Guardians of the Galaxy, the virtually the entire cast is superb at comedy. David Batusa's Drax is magnificent and he totally crossed over to mainstream Hollywood from wrestling with a, a superb performance. And uh, Chris Pratt became a leading man through it. Uh, Bradley Cooper is the raccoon Groot of course Van Diesel all of them had their own comic stylings it was sharp and it was funny so that's why I put that in above the others at 47 Craig Zahler S. Craig Zahler directed his uh, I think debut film American director starring Kurt Russell and a western called Bone Tomahawk many of you may not have seen it if you haven't don't read up about it just watch it It's one of the great dummies of the decade in that it sells you, I guess due to the presence of Kurt Russell, what you assume is going to be a vaguely funny and entertaining western, which it is. Um, It's around the halfway stage that the wheels come off and it goes into really dark territory. Very, very twisted. Unforgettable in certain scenes. Some of the imagery in the final third is rightly controversial and rightly unforgettable. Uh, there's a death scene in it which no one who watches will ever want to see again and the final image uh, of the women is absolutely appalling and um, it's stuck in my head for hours so I love it when films set you up to expect one thing but then they take you on a journey you didn't sign up for and it's well worth catching Bone Tomahawk 46 a sequel to a film that came out this decade and could have made it the um Gareth Evans from Wales, for some reason, ended up directing probably the most popular Indonesian movie of the decade in The Raid, which played out like a first-person shooter video game, and is brilliant. It's superb. But I actually liked Raid 2, which was um, less of a video shooter, more like The Godfather. It was over two and a half hours long, but it had enough story to warrant it, all these conflicting people. It followed on from the first Raid film. But it was the aftermath, it was all of the conflicting forces that met up in the first film, 
all sort of uh, tying themselves down and, and finishing off their opponents over this very long-form cerebral gangster movie with probably four or five of the best fight scenes I've ever seen. Uh, that came out in 2014, and we're waiting on uh, Raid 3. It's at 46, 45. The Avengers. Now, uh, again, like Guardians of the Galaxy, I've picked Avengers 1 and not the Dreadful 2, and not the decent, really decent, three or four. Infinity War and Endgame tend to be um, listed above it or rated more highly. For me, they're retreads of Avengers, because the first Avenger movie put together all of the elements, all the disparate elements from the Marvel Universe into one film, and was a huge success in the way it did it. The story was excellent. All of the characters gelled really well, and it's difficult to remember that this is where... All of those characters, like Thor and Captain America and Iron Man, were on screen together for the first time. So I do think, as good as Infinity War and Endgame were, they were really retreading the water from Avengers 1. It got a bit too gnarly and a bit too battle scene at the end, but so have the other films, and that's pretty much set the standard there as well. But I've got it at 45. At uh, 44, another film that really set a benchmark was uh, Fast Five, the Fast and the Furious film by Justin Lin. Every film since has been a $700 million to $1 billion box office success. But it's um, worth remembering the films weren't highly regarded up until four, and it was only four that all of the forces sort of came together in the same movie because um, it, was, it was the return of Van Diesel for a start as he'd been missing from two and three. Virtually all the cast bar Paul Walker that were in the first film were missing from two and three. And everyone came back for an enjoyable but lacklustre four. Five was a complete shock. It was a much more modern, it was beautifully shot. The locations were much more interesting. The story was much sharper. And we got the entire squad together for the first time. And they've really been retreading that water since. But I thought the six, seven, eight, really good uh, gradually declining in, in quality but five remains the best fast and the furious film and that's at my 44 and i'm going to play a track from led zeppelin uh what am i playing am i playing Led zeppelin when i say 50 best films of the year as with my albums they're my favorites not i mathematically decided that they're better than other films these are the ones, looking back over the decade, that I thought meant the most to me and I enjoyed the most, and usually they represented something. Uh, we left at Fast Five at 44, and at 43, Quentin Tarantino. His Hateful Eight was, a, like all his films, quite divisive. A three-hour-long Western, and let's face it, Scorsese and Tarantino don't know anything under two hours, 30 minutes anyway. Um, I absolutely adored it. I think... It is possibly the best written Tarantino film, given it's a group of people basically in a room for three hours. And I said in my review of it, you could stage it without doing much. You wouldn't really need to change anything about the screenplay or script to put it on stage. And that's strong writing. And the fact that it wasn't dull over its three hours shows how good it was and Kurt Russell, Samuel Jackson, the whole cast were excellent in it. It's my 43rd film of the decade, 42, a debut by Dan Gilroy, an unforgettable one starring one of the decade's best actors, Jake Gyllenhaal, Nightcrawler. 
Uh, Cruel is a good word to have in the title of that film. Came out in 2014 about a, well, sociopath really, but someone that roams around at night and finds out that he can make money by turning up to accidents and filming them and sending the footage to TV networks. It says a lot more than the premise gives, but... Uh, I'm sure you can work out the various sort of symbolism and metaphors that are for the wider use of media and news media on society. And obviously, Gyllenhaal Hall ends up in, in a place where he gets darker and darker as he becomes more and more popular. And it kind of veers Behoven to, you know, give these accidents a little bit of a helping hand. Great film, very impressive debut. 41. Yet another, um, I'm not going to do a whole list of uh, this kind of film, but there are a few early on. Uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Last year's Fallout was uh, regarded as the best, but for me, like Fast Five, Mission Impossible 4 was the first time the franchise became really good. Uh, One, crap. Two, awful. Three was uh, getting it back. And that journey through 3 was like Fast and Furious 4. It was like all of the elements were starting to coalesce. Philip Seymour Hoffman was great, but 4 was the, when it became state-of-the-art. The, the um, writing was much sharper. The story was much better. The locations, such as that great big tower in, I think, Dubai or Abu Dhabi, I'm not sure which one, was horrible if you've got vertigo. I actually don't watch that scene very much because it just scares me so much. It's horrible. But it looked fantastic. The dust storm and the blizzard in the desert had a really good story. Tom Cruise was excellent in it and has held the franchise together. And I thought that was when it really it changed from being an also Rome franchise into uh, one, you know, James Bond big. And it hasn't put a foot wrong since. They've all been really, really good. Fallout arguably even better. But I've got. Uh, Mission Impossible 4, Ghost Protocol at 41. That's the first of the 10. At 40, Ben Wheatley remains one of the most interesting film directors in the UK. No one's been able to pigeonhole him with anything yet. His big budget film, High Rise, the JG Ballad film, was a bit of a misfire. Uh, a field in England, one of the most art films of the whole decade. Sightsee is one of the best black comedies of the decade. But his opening film, Kill List, starring Neil Maskell, I thought was utterly superb. It was, again, a film that set off looking like it was going to be Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and ending up in a very, very dark place, darker than Hereditary, more twisted, more upsetting than Killing of a Sacred Deer. It becomes incredibly violent by the halfway stage. Uh, It involves two hitmen who were genial at first, going off on a kill list. And they gradually come to realise who they're killing, which makes their paedophiles, basically. And that makes everything get worse and worse. But there's some curious moments when they're killing these guys, which actually shows that they're quite happy to die. And that has huge ramifications on where the plot goes. One of the great endings in movie history, and one that leaves you just shaking and going, no, why did you do that? It's it's utterly shocking. Unforgettable. Kill List at 40. 39, funnily enough, Hereditary by Ari Aster, another debut. Brilliant performance by Tony Collette. Brilliant horror movie. And again, I love it when films like Hereditary squeeze under the radar and take $50 million at the box office in the first week. 
when people think they're getting paranormal or the conjuring and they end up getting that it's a much more disturbing and upsetting film than you probably think it is if you haven't seen it unforgettable stuff at 38 one of the most underrated by arguably the director of the decade he's got phantom thread he's got the master and inherent vice never got any kudos and it's the only film i've reviewed this decade twice because the first time i saw it i think i gave it six out of ten and said it was a letdown like everyone else but once i went back and watched it it's lackluster story didn't matter because the scene on scene was absolutely superb it's every single scene in it is is, is almost a minor classic uh uh Who's the star in that one? Oh, Joaquin Phoenix, another of the uh, decade's great actors. Brilliant film. At 37, Pixar and Coco. Their take on the Mexican Day of the Dead was an unexpectedly soulful and tear-jerking film multiple times. Very poignant, great plot twists that you don't see coming and that pack a real emotional impact. Good voice cast, unbelievably beautiful to look at. And that's my 37th best of the decade. At 36, Boon Jong-ho is currently getting a lot of plaudits for his Korean film Parasite and people wondering whether it will get nominated not for best foreign language film but for best picture. Back in the day, he released a film called Snowpiercer, which I absolutely adored. A dystopian uh, symbolist fantasy about classes on a train being society in a future where everything's destroyed the poorer at the back of the train then it goes up to the middle class in the middle and the upper class at the end with all of society's problems along the way absolutely superb visually stunning and it was chris evans in it as well a mainly english-speaking film so don't be put off it was fantastic at 36 at 35 dennis villeneuve is it villeneuve i'm going to say villeneuve because I don't know. Uh, Dennis Villeneuve is another, alongside Paul Thomas Anderson, of the directors of the decade, an amazing list of films, Arrival, Blade Runner, 2049, Sicario, Incendies, and uh, just an astonishing diversity. And his film, uh, Enemy, was his most challenging art house. Jake Gyllenhaal up again in dual roles as a, a guy who works in a boring classroom who sees someone in a movie that looks his exact doppelganger and the rest of the movie is him trying to track down this actor from the film who is so identical to him in every way it leads to an amazingly uh, psychological thriller which a lot of people would have been turned off by because it's so oblique i actually sat through a youtube video about the story and it does make complete sense like a lot of these art house films the central premise of it is actually very simple and very powerful, and I thought it was a brilliant film. If you've ever seen it and don't know what happened, look it up on YouTube because it is really interesting. At 34, The Witch by Roger Eggers, who's also up for a lot of Oscars attention with his film The Lighthouse currently out. I absolutely adored it. Uh, a new, another new kind of horror in the same bandwidth as things like Hereditary. Uh, and Killing of the Sacred Deer, very unsettling rather than full of slamming doors and shocks uh, about mi um, Middle Ages people, uh, post-Middle Ages, 1600s, living in America, very devout Christians that believe their daughter might have come under the spell of a witch, and absolutely fantastic. And I'm going to play a piece of music going back to the Hateful Eight, 
This is Ennio Morricone. I'm going to mix it up between um, normal music and uh, film scores. One of the best year, uh, decades ever for the film score. There have been so many memorable film scores, particularly in horrors or art house films. Uh, but this is the first time the greatest film scorer of all time, Ennio Morricone, got an Oscar uh, for The Hateful Eight. And this is from it. And it's called Lotima. You're with Julian counting down my top 50 films of the decade. I left you at The Witch. At 33, I've got a couple of documentaries, dependent on how cinematic they are and how rewarding they were on that level. Inside Job by Charles Ferguson won the Oscar that year. And alongside The Big Short, it's the best cinematic evaluation of why the global financial crisis happened. It paints all of the technological terms, very, very almost deliberately, willfully obscure financial instruments in sharp relief and makes it all very understandable. It's thrilling and gobsmacking that it's such a, an appalling story about how criminal and corrupt they were. At 32, Dennis Villeneuve again and Ryan Gosling, who shows up a little bit later. Uh, Blade Runner 2049, I thought it was a massive success. Um, it looked fantastic. Roger Deakin finally got his best cinematography. That was the same as Ennio Morricone. Roger Deakin became a the laughing stock of the Oscars by making so many films and being nominated so many times as for his cinematography and finally won it for that film. But psychologically, thematically, it took the ideas from the original Blade Runner and pushed them further. And it had a very soulful story, a very interesting ideas were floated around and Harrison Ford showed up and was really good at towards the end. And it was a really good story, a, a thrilling look through the eyes of the world of Blade Runner years after it happened. Uh, I thought it was a complete success. Uh, one of the most prominent films of the decade, Jordan Peele, I guess you could say kicked off the black cinema movement, if you want to call it something so reductive, with his film Get Out. It was a social horror movie uh, closer to the Stepford Wives than to something like um, The Conjuring or, or Paranormal Activity. Very, very clever. Daniel Kaluuya was excellent in the lead in this heavily racial film, um, which was nonetheless light on its feet, brilliantly directed. Us came out this year, which was really good, but not quite as good. It was a bit more leaden. But that's my 31. So we're up to the, my top 30 films of the decade and i'm going to go with inception at 30 christopher nolan uh his last great success really and i wonder whether he's sort of lost it a little bit outside of the batman franchise interstellar wasn't up there much but inception was where that vast canvas and a 200 million dollar budget were used to great effect leonardo dicaprio was superb in the central role and i really liked his motivation as well his his wife's suicide dominating his thought process and the the whole uh, memory within a memory or dream within a dream was uh, psychologically fascinating and it looked incredible. At 29, Paul Verhoeven was an enfant terrible of the 80s and 90s with stuff like Basic Instinct and Showgirls, of course. Came back with a stunning French film called Elle starring Isabel Hupper, who should have won the Oscar for Best Actress that year. It was a rape story, but it wasn't like any rape story presented on film. For a start, the uh, victim, Isabel Huppert, just goes on with her life afterwards. And that's very challenging. 
and then she actually starts a relationship with the rapist. So it's a very challenging film, but it goes to some very fascinating places. It's unique, and in every way that the likes of Basic Instinct were challenging to audiences and critics, this was, but in different ways, and just as uh, awful in others. Uh, 28, another documentary, Matthew Heinemann's amazing documentary, Cartel Land, which was a truly brilliant expose of the war on drugs in Mexico ahead of its time. It came out in 2016 and uh, focused on both the border, the US border with Mexico and the vigilantes along it. And also uh, another vigilante in Mexico who took on the cartels, who actually formed an army and used to execute these people when they found them. It's an incredible story, amazingly shot, uh, and Cartel lands at 28, 27. Once again, Paul Thomas Anderson, his last film, I didn't put The Master in, it would have been close, but Phantom Thread, um, unlike anything else released this decade, an astonishing uh, romance, I guess you could call it, but I found it to be quite um, a disturbing look at mental health as well. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, in arguably his last performance, he said it is, was superb, as he always is in everything, but another... Almost the opposite of Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood. A brilliant, brilliant performance. So I'm going to play a bit of music. At 38, uh, I left you at 27, my 50 top films of the decade. Uh, 26, Zero Dark Thirty, Catherine Bigelow. I berated a lot for her film The Hurt Locker, but the Best Picture Oscar almost never goes to a worthy film. Look at Green Book last year. That was a 6 out of 10 at best. And uh, The Hurt Locker just wasn't a good film. Um, Zero Dark Thirty, which was a shock to me, was brilliant. Uh, a much longer, wider story and a terrific central performance of Jessica Chastain. Very strong grip of the screenplay and direction. Very, very good film. 25, a, another of uh, the Marvel films, and it might be the last one. I think it is. Uh, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. That brought a whole world of complexity to the Marvel Universe. It was a throwback to almost to the 70s paranoia films. In it, we found the true heart of Captain America not being this sort of um, cheerleader for America, but actually uh, quite a difficult character and one that wouldn't compromise. And it, by the end of the movie, we've taken apart S.H.I.E.L.D., we've destroyed the entire organisation, which was rotten to the core, and we find out all of these stories from Nazi Germany infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D. back in the 1940s and virtually everyone involved in the organisation being corrupt. It was a terrific thriller with a breakneck story, very unexpected and a brilliant film all round. The best, I think, of the Avenger films, Winter Soldier. At 24, Darren Aronofsky's Mother, I thought was a much better take on the Noah story or, or the creation story than Noah itself was. One of the most diverse films of the decade. Lots of people hated it. Jennifer Lawrence was superb. And uh, at 24, at 23, David Fincher seems to have disappeared from filmmaking lately. For a while there, he was untouchable. The odd bummer in his catalogue, but even those like Zodiac, which wasn't a complete success, and Benjamin Button, which is pretty bad. Um, but he's still got an incredible filmography. And The Social Network really set the decade going. Uh, it was an incredible film, and Jesse Eisenberg perfectly cast as Mark Zuckerberg, and of course, Facebook hangs over us to this day. 
At 22, Alex Garland after Ex Machina, which I didn't rate at all, the author of The Beach and screenwriter to a lot of uh, Danny Boyle's films like 28 Days Later, finally delivered on his second film, Annihilation, starring Natalie Portman in 2018. It was my second best film last year. Utterly brilliant, utterly magnificent, inventive, weird, psych- uh, psychedelic, and very challenging and art house towards the end. And at number 22, and I'm going to play uh, something from the soundtrack to Blade Runner, which was lower down the list, which is a little bit of a break now as I do something I do every year. My worst films of the year. Now, these aren't bad films. Only a couple of them are terrible. Actually, more than a couple. But I usually list my um, worst films of the year, and it often has a correlation between how bad I thought they were and the critical opinion. So these are my 12 most overrated films of the decade. Black Panther, I thought was a 6 out of 10, slightly below Captain Marvel. Uh, a nothing film. It felt very amateur hour when they in Wakanda. And it got like insane reviews and you know they wanted it for, to be best picture. And I thought it was a, a middling entry in the Marvel Universe. The Last Jedi... The tone was off. I, I, I mean, I have a problem with these films because all the fanboys come out and a lot of them are really sexist or racist and they've gone after these films and that's not why I don't like them. I just didn't rate The Last Jedi at all. The tone was off. The story was weak. The usage of the legacy characters compared to The Force Awakens was terrible. Uh, the, the use of Skywalker in it and Leia was really bad. Um, it didn't mean anything. It was a stopgap film that didn't progress the story of Star Wars anywhere. Nothing really happened. It retrod certain elements, such as the Master and Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader standoff from Jedi was just replayed verbatim, almostly, in and much worse. So that was rubbish. Crazy Rich Asians, I gave I think one out of ten to. The, other than the Asian cast, the most formularic uh, rom-com I've ever seen. Every single scene in it seemed to be cut out of another rom-com. Absolute garbage. Uh, Moonlight, another Best Picture winner. And I thought it was just a 6 out of 10. It was a boring film. I thought the first two acts repeated themselves. The third didn't go anywhere until a classic sequence at the end. It looked beautiful. It sounded beautiful. Um, the main character was just dull as dishwater. All of the surrounding characters were much better. So Moonlight in there as well. These are my most overrated films of the decade. La La Land I thought was flat out terrible. How Emma Stone got an Oscar for that, I've got no idea. Um, it was a almost singularly unique in that it was a really bad movie and a really bad musical on top. The music even was terrible in it. The choreography was rubbish. The cinematography was excellent and uh, it's about the only time I've seen Ryan Gosling not be good. Spotlight, where have you seen that on the uh, roundups of best films of the decade? Best Picture winner, I raged about it being over the big short, which I thought was better in every conceivable filmmaking way. It was a TV standard movie, and at the end of the decade, everyone's favourite film of that year, completely ignored, funnily that. Argo, uh, absolute garbage from... um, Ben Affleck, uh, his first film was brilliant, Gone Baby Gone. Second one, averagely brilliant, like half actually brilliant and half pretty bad. The Town, but still very watchable. Argo flew by, another Best Picture winner. They always get it wrong. Now no one cares about it at all. Baby Driver I hated. 
Uh, got over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Absolute rubbish, derivative, sub-Guy Ritchie, and uh, a terrible lead role as well. Um, Skyfall, um, I thought that Spectre was... I've got Skyfall and Spectre in my list of the most overrated films of the decade. They both got disturbingly high Rotten Tomatoes scores, but are two of the worst Bond films I've ever seen. Spectre makes me think that Skyfall was better than it actually is. Uh, it looked very pretty, but it was... Um, I don't know, something went. We lost a lot when we lost Judy Dench, but um, all of the newbies, the M and the Q and the Money Penny, well, I thought rubbish. Excuse me. That's actually from the smoke that you can smell in the studio from outside. So I thought Skyfall and Spectre really spoil a great opening from Daniel Craig and uh, Quantum... Me was it Quantum Menace? Quantum Menace? Um, I thought that was an underrated film. But Skyfall and Spectre in my most overrated of the decade. I'm actually having to drink water because there's so much smoke in the studio. Uh, a really shocking one. Um, I saw it again recently next to The Irishman. I saw Martin Scorsese's three-hour film Wolf of Wall Street, which everyone loved. But I always had a bit of a problem with, and watching it next to a screenplay that earns it three and a half hours, The Wolf of Wall Street does not earn its three hours. Within half an hour, you've got um, Leonardo DiCaprio in a brilliant performance, a superb performance, and Jonah Hill, they're two, one of the comic doubles of the decade. But within half an hour, they've got prostitutes and drugs in the office, and that's pretty much what happens for the next two hours. It doesn't progress... Um, you could leave out any middle half hour and it wouldn't change virtually anything in the film and it's very very overlong and very tiring to get through and I thought it was um, actually one of Scorsese's worst films and finally in my most overrated films of the decade Richard Linklater's Boyhood another one that got enormous acclaim uh, on Metacritic it's the best reviewed film of the entire decade it's torture Um the thing that I had the biggest problem with, again, like Moonlight, the lead character is the dullest person in it. And you spend all this time with this very boring individual who you don't even care about. But it was also that all of these vignettes filmed over a 12-year period were so dull. There was um, They couldn't even get an interesting, even from a cinema verite point of view, sequence to put in there. It was just like he'd filmed... They were like outtakes. It was like an entire movie of outtakes. It was very bland, very boring... Patricia Arquette was superb, Ethan Hawke was good, and no one else was interesting. It was three hours of absolute torture that didn't go anywhere, didn't mean anything, and didn't leave a lasting impression. That's my overrated films of the decade. And back to my films of the decade, Pixar at 21. We left at Annihilation at 22. Pixar at 21 with the Inside Out. One of two masterpieces this decade from Pixar, from Pete Doctor, director, I thought was utterly magnificent and um, very moving, like Coco, just a really moving, thoughtful film. And it left you like films like um, Up and Wall-E, where there's so much emotion that comes through. And I thought it was a very human film. Breaking finally into the top 20 with Whiplash, Damien Chazelle is the villain behind La La Land. How such a great first film turned into that, I don't know. But Whiplash was superb. J.K. Simmons won an Oscar for one of the most terrifying performances of a teacher in history of cinema. Um, absolutely wonderful and um, breakneck speed, thrilling, exciting, and really, really rollicking as well. So from that 
This is Stan Getz, and it's from the soundtrack Into It. At 19, Joel and Ethan Cohen have had, by their terms, a very quiet decade. And it's interesting how so many of these uh, directors, like Christopher Nolan to Paul Thomas Anderson to David Fincher, move between big budget and art house, and I think that split has widened over the years. I can't imagine Christopher Nolan doing an art house film like Memento ever again. But the Cohen brothers came back with Inside Llewellyn Davis at 19, uh, I think a near debut from Oscar Isaacs, who's an actor I absolutely adore, as a troubadour bumming around in Greenwich Village in the early 60s, a very sort of um, existential story, not much story, it's just following a week in his life as he moves from couch to couch. But it's showing up in a lot of uh, the best films of the decade list, and I think it was even in the BBC's um, best films of the century so far list, quite high up as well. Really good film. At number 18, David McKenzie, and the writer who was on an incredible run, uh, Taylor Sheridan, um, gave us Hell or High Water, which uh, reimagined Chris Pine as a serious actor, and Ben Foster even better. Uh, a truly great film with um, a southern pot boiler almost about bank robbers, but one with uh, one foot in the present as it talked about mortgages and repossessing homes and fighting back against the forces doing that. Uh, an incredible film that went much further than just being a, a bank robber thriller at 18. At 17, Spike Jones's film Her. Again, uh, Joaquin Phoenix turns up and Scarlett Johansson shows up with her voice alone. And uh, she even got some awards for her voice performance. And Joaquin Phoenix is in the future where uh, your operating system gets to know you. Um, as soon as you turn the computer on, it begins to learn about you and they fall in love. And that's a, sto a story that's only got more poignant as the years have rolled by. When did that come out? 2013, yeah, like this is um, just ahead of the curve. It's, it's, more, it's not just about internet dating, it's about our relationship with technology and I thought it was very profound. At number 16, I could have chosen the entire three John Wick films. It represented uh, a new paradigm in movie making. It's like someone comes along and gives you something you didn't know you wanted or needed, and you do. As soon as it arrived, the first film, everyone noted how brilliant it was to have Keanu in that kind of role, how well shot it was, how hard-edged, how referential towards 70s thrillers, the look and everything, and also towards the more sort of action orientated uh, sort of Hong Kong or Kung Fu movies as well. It was a perfect balance, but I've chosen John Wick 3 Parabellum from 2019, only about six months old, the best of the bunch. It looks amazing. The cast is Lawrence Fishburne, Ian McShane, a great Keanu superb, and it just looks amazing. The action sequences are the best of any film on this list, probably, maybe other than Raid 2. And we're into my top 15 films of the decade. And Jonathan Glazer uh, made a film called Sexy Beast in the 90s, which everyone adored, and then only made one film in the resulting 15 years after it. And he came back with an art house film in 2013 called Under the Skin, which was a very challenging, provocative science fiction story. It wasn't as oblique if you know the story about aliens harvesting humans for food, but it was presented in a, an uncompromising, relentlessly art house way. And it shows how um, 
how serious people took the film, given that Scarlett Johansson is frequently naked in it, and no one, and she hasn't been in any other film, and no one even sort of mentioned it. And you even see um, erections in the film, which are probably enough to get a film banned. But because it's such an art house film, no one mentioned it. Its uh, feel and vibe is incredible. Scarlett Johansson is amazing. And I'm going to play something from, you look at any list of the, uh, I I guess a misnomer is calling them soundtracks because um, a soundtrack is a collection of songs you've chosen for your movie. A score is a piece of music written for the film. So they're really film scores. And you look at any list of the top 10 film scores of the decade, this tops it. Uh, Mika Levy. I think it's Mika Levy. Yeah, Mika Levy from England, female uh, composer. And she wrote the number one film score of the decade with Under the Skin. And the soundtrack rated by just about everyone as the best of the whole decade. And number 14, moving into the Amazon, Sierra Guerra and his film... Uh, Embrace of the Serpent, an astonishing bookended tale of travelling up the Amazon um, one uh, 30 years before the second, and the second one tracing the steps of a, a missing German explorer. It was an incredible black and white film. It looked amazing, and uh, it was a real uh, post-apocalypse now, post-Aguiri uh, Wrath of God descent into madness as they go further and further up this river and further into um, desolation. And also it shows 30 years later how bad the impact of uh, Westerners upon the tribespeople of the Amazon has. Amazing film, like nothing else. From Argentina, Damien Ziviron? Zifron. Damien Zifron from Argentina directed Wild Tales. Almost the antithesis of films like Babel and 21 Grams, which have multiple storylines and are very heavy and thread all of these storylines together. This was a collection of short stories that shared similar themes about the effects of revenge on people. And um, it went in completely unexpected directions. Uh, Sometimes the stories, which are only around 10 minutes long, left you breathless with where it went. You just didn't see it coming. Every story is excellent. Some of them are beyond excellent. It contains the best wedding sequence of any movie of all time it's just mind-blowing it's a brilliant story anyone should watch it it's impossible to get bored because each story instead of being heavy and interlaced you get one for 10 minutes it's incredible and then you've got a new one um wild tales was utterly magnificent i think all the films from now on i was probably gave nine and a half out of ten or nine out of ten to at number 12 i started the list with kenneth lonergan's margaret and 12, Manchester by the Sea, which was a shattering film. It contained one of the decade's hardest moments. Casey Affleck won an Oscar, rightly so. Uh, He plays a miserableist uh, shut-in janitor who leaves the big city because his brother dies and goes back to a town he fled from. It's around the halfway point in the movie where you find out why he's like he is and why he left the town, and it is so bad. Uh, It's a painful, painful film, but it doesn't shy away from humanity at all, and it doesn't offer easy answers. Michelle Williams, I wish she'd been in it more. She's a brilliant actress, and she's great in this. But it's Casey Affleck who spend the whole film with in an impossible state. As soon as you find out what he's done, you're like, well, what would you do? Would you even go on living? 
Uh, number 12, and number 11, another film from this year. Good year, I think, actually, for films. Martin Scorsese lining up De Niro, Pesci and Pacino in a film that, unlike Wolf of Wall Street, earns its enormous running time of three and a half hours. It's a brilliant film. It's been called his best since Goodfellas, I'd agree. And um, a very different film to his other gangster films in that it's um, methodical pacing rather than dynamically hitting you over the head scene after the scene. And it's also got some incredibly deep performances from the lead three. All of I can't believe De Niro never got nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor. It's one of his best ever performances. Uh, Pesci and Pacino did get nominated, but if, Joe, if uh, Robert De Niro doesn't get an Oscar nomination for this, uh, I just can't believe it. It's actually one of his most thoughtful performances. Um, it's uh, caused a lot of trouble, and Scorsese's promoted it brilliantly. Um, it's an incredible film. It's very deep. It's very woven. It's very um, philosophical about aging and about friendship, and contains it all builds around the murder of Jimmy Hoffa, and it's a, a painful event. Um, unlike Goodfellas, where you, you know characters come up and are whacked and you don't see them again, this is more an environment where it's all building to this one moment where you're wondering whether Robert De Niro can really kill his best friend. Um, incredible acting throughout, beautifully put together, and that's my number 11. And from that film, which does have a lot of music in it, just not as bombastic, this is uh, The Still of the Night. From the So here we go, into the top 10, and more music from these films too. At number 10, George Miller came back with, I think, the best Mad Max film of all. I think a lot of the sexists out there wanted to knock Fury Road because it was Mad Maxine. Tom Hardy's Max, even though he's one of my favourite actors, it's his least important and least good role of the decade. And he was background noise compared to Charlize Theron, who owned the film. It was the best looking film, I think, of the decade. And the action was utterly superb. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road at 10 and hopefully they're going to do a sequel but um, apparently Charlize and Tom hated each other's guts I don't know if that's why he was sidelined so much in the film it didn't matter for me it was um, it was it was it was a film about Charlize and the other girls escaping uh, their fate and I thought it was brilliant and number nine the director with the most entries I think three Denis Villeneuve and at number nine his highest entry which is Sicario. I absolutely adored this. I love that kind of film. It was about DEA agents taking on the Mexican cartels and also about the law enforcement agencies in America struggling with being legal and what the CIA will go to in order to prosecute their aims. Uh, uh, it was stunningly shot. Villeneuve was on a roll and um, it, the, it had breathtaking sequences in it. Really, really good cinematography. Really good action. Emily Blunt was fantastic. Josh Brolin was magnificent. Benici Del Toro was awards-worthy in his role in it. Everything that was lost in the second, which was dire. But Sicario, one of the best thrillers of the decade, and another thing that was great about it was the late Icelandic composer, Johan Johansson, made the soundtrack, as he did for many Villeneuve films, all the way up to Blade Runner. He didn't do that one. Uh, some of the best soundtrack work of the decade was on Sicario, and this is some of it. At number eight, Call Me By Your Name by Luca Guandagno, who recently did the reboot of Suspiria, 
and uh, it featured a waterworthy performance from Timothy Chalamet. Uh, as a holiday romance that was like no other, I thought it was a beautiful, lyrical, soulful film. I absolutely adored watching it. It, it looked lovely. And um, it was the thought processes by this very European family and dealing with their son's first true love and him being a man that he was falling in love with. Uh, Arnie Hammer in another great performance. And um, the the fact that everyone's so adult and European in it, it never really comes up that it's uh, a guy that he's fallen for. They're so supportive. It's just so unusual to watch a film where people are genuinely supportive of you no matter what you do. It was a, one of the most beautiful films and had this uh, very, int uh, almost a theme music was this by the Psychedelic Furs. At number seven and the highest ranked film from this year, two heavyweights go head to head this year, Tarantino and Scorsese and will do at the Oscars as well. Featuring absolutely superb performances from Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Margot Robbie is getting some awards nods, but I would say that she's in the background enough not to be asked to do too much. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, my favourite film this year. Um, I adored it. I've watched it several times and it gets better each time. It's just an enjoyable world to spend time in. There's not much story. But it doesn't matter because it's just so cool hanging out with Brad and Leo in these amazing sequences. Even hanging out with Margot as she goes about her day. It's, it's just a wonderful world to spend time in. It's the year's most meta film. Uh, it constantly references back to Tarantino's loves in cinema. And the characters sometimes are blurred between being actual people or actors playing them. Or fabrications or composites of other people around at the time. Margot Robbie's the real Sharon Tate. Brad and Leo are amalgams of other people that existed at the time. Its mood, its soundtrack, everything about it was wonderful. It showed, I thought, a more mature Tarantino. It wasn't as focused on writing as much as it was on mood and spending time getting to know these people. So I thought Once Upon a Time in America was amazing. And a bit of the soundtrack from that, the best soundtrack he's probably done since um, Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Tarantino's warmest and most human film, I think, apart from the uh, apocalyptic ending, which occupies a short period of the film, it's, it's his nicest film. In, in fact, apart from the spectre hanging over Brad Pitt's character, very interestingly, Brad Pitt won Best Actor for this recently, because I always put uh, Leo at the top in this film, but um, interesting to see he wasn't nominated as a supporting actor and won in one role. He's been nominated as Best Supporting Actor in um, the Golden Globes just announced. But it was a soulful film. It was his uh, fond look back at Hollywood from the, the 60s and the emerging counterculture replacing the cowboys of old. But it has so much more to say than that and I just love watching it. I've seen it a few times and it's my number seven in my films of the decade. You're with Julian on the brown note. And now this. Well, what you're listening to is Tom Twyker, Ryan, Reinhold Heil and Johnny Klimek and their film score for another of the decade's most divisive films. 
which is by Lana and Lily Wachowski of Matrix fame, who've had a very up and down road since, but I've loved their movies much more than the critics have. And I was completely, I think every single film in the top eight has been my film of the year, apart from the top two. And there's a reason which I uh, was very surprised about, but I shall tell you in a little while. But Cloud Atlas, I thought it was a magisterial film. It had its flaws. <coughs> Not all of the sequences were as good as the others, particularly the, the later ones by the Wachowski sisters. But overall, I found it a very profound and unique experience. The idea that throughout the ages, small instances of an individual standing up to authority and standing up for freedom, no matter how tiny the moment, may reverberate through the ages and inspire other people along the way. I thought it was one of the most profound films of the decade. It was my film of the year when it came out and all the early sequences, probably 60% of the film, are just magnificent. Uh, different director was responsible for those. And also the, um, the score for Cloud Atlas was the biggest miss from the Oscars ever as far as uh, film scores go because it's a metaphor for the film as well that this um, refrain from a piece of music can reverberate through the ages and inspire people later on is kind of like the whole film in a microcosm so Cloud Atlas at number 6 at number 5 my favourite film of last year absolutely ridiculous that it wasn't up for best picture best director, best screenplay and what Ethan Hawke has done not to get a Best Actor nomination. First Reformed, Paul Schrader wrote Taxi Driver and has intermittently involved himself in films in recent years. He's never delivered anything as challenging or as profound or as resonant as the astonishing First Reformed about Ethan Hawke as a priest who loses his son in Iraq and whose congregation uh, contains a man who is a, an eco-warrior, but who's so convinced that we've, we're destroying the world and there's no escape that he kills himself. And this has a knock-on effect on an already very broken psyche. There's very few films, I would say, that are as contemporary when looking at impending Armageddon as this film. It stares straight into the void. It's an incredible piece of work. Career best performance from Ethan Hawke, but the writing and directing is incredible. Um, first Reformed at number five. At number four, a film that no one's picked, but I thought it was utterly magnificent. Adam McKay has transitioned from the best films featuring Will Farrell, like Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, and into much more serious fare. And he did so with the big short. Uh, he recently did so with the massively underrated Vice. Um, which is a brilliant film that never got the kudos it deserved. Um, but The Big Short, it did win an Oscar, and it should have won Best Picture over Spotlight. But I thought it was an incredible look at the global financial crisis. It was magnificent state-of-the-art filmmaking. It had a large ensemble cast with absolute standout performances across the board. Ryan Gosling was amazing. Steve Carroll was Oscar-worthy. Uh, Christian Bale was Oscar-worthy. And it was rock and roll filmmaking. It was like Goodfellas era Scorsese. It was very fast and dynamic. And like uh, the inside job earlier in the list, it explained the concepts of financial instruments that caused the global financial crisis really, really well. The book it was based on was magnificent too. And it's from that film, 
My number four film of the decade, The Big Short, not getting the love of some of the others in my top ten. This is featured in a uh, music-heavy soundtrack. How fitting for the global financial crisis is that song? That was from my number four film. I'm Yoav Julian on the brand though, counting down my top 50 films of the decade. At number four was The Big Short, where that film, uh, song from Frank Sinatra was featured. Now, I mentioned there's a big run of my films of the year. I just uh, went through about five in a row, including what would have been my film of the year this year, I think, Once Upon a Time. In Hollywood, just pipping The Irishman, maybe. Uh, it's a good fight. I, I love both films and both made my top 11. Now, the top three is something very different and something I didn't even realise until I put it together. Well, my I, I went through my albums of the decade and 2010 just kept cropping up over and over. It was insane. It must have been 20 entries from that, deca- uh, that year alone. Well, my top three films of the decade are my top three films from 2011 in reverse which is bizarre, and I didn't even realise until I put the list together. At number three, Terence Malick came back. Uh, Terence Malick was huge in the uh, 70s with his signature dreamlike shooting in the magic hour, which is the point at which the sun sets, but there's still light. Films like Badlands and Days of Heaven. And he often goes away for long periods of time, or he makes less lacklustre product and um, it sort of gets ignored. But he had a huge gap until The Thin Red Line, which is a film that wipes the living floor with Saving Private Ryan, the most overrated film of the last 30 years by Miles. Well, he had another long gap and came back with uh, a film near a lot of people's top of people's lists, The Tree of Life. Some found it boring and ponderous. I found it transcendental and psychologically fascinating, beautifully shot, dreamlike. Almost as though, as with The Thin Red Line, you spend the entire movie in different characters' heads as they come to terms with life and um, parenthood and their children and how their children feel now they've grown up, particularly under an extremely stern, almost abusive parent and how they feel about it in their adulthood. It was a film about life in general and it was magnificent um he's got a good film out now but what his work's been since then has uh, not got anywhere near the acclaimed tree of life has it was an incredible work of art from 2011 and it featured brad pitt and sean penn brad pitt shows up uh, quite bizarrely often in um, great films um he was i think the dad and sean penn was the um, the son in his adult form uh, it was not like anything else, but it was like a kind of cinematic language that only Terence Malick is any good at, and he seems to have made himself. It was long, it put a lot of people off, and not everybody adored it, but I did. I thought it was an incredible work of art, and it was my favourite film of 2011, but now it's only my third favourite film of 2011, because the final two are both from that year and are in reverse. And number two, uh, one of the most controversial filmmakers Lars von Trier uh, back in 2011 he made probably his most accessible film he's um, been making films since and some of those have got a lot of attention Antichrist particularly got an enormous amount of attention I thought it was brilliant it was a very controversial film there was some very upsetting violence in it um, but it was still very very interesting 
And Lars von Trier has made uh, films like The Idiots, which are even more controversial. And his film from 2011, Melancholia, well, that seemed to hew far closer to um, the mainstream than any of his other films have done. Um, during the uh, Cannes Film Festival, which highly regarded the film and gave Kristen Dunst uh, Best Actress Award for that film, um, he made some off-colour jokes about Nazis, and there's this perception that that basically killed its Oscar chances dead. Even Kristen Dunst, who won Best Actress at Cannes, wasn't even nominated, let alone the film, but it's showing up in a lot of films of the decade lists. Uh, Melancholia was uh, a film about Kristen Dunst dealing with depression and um, basically being at a wedding in a, in a big country house. The uh, spectre is the fact that there's an enormous planet appeared close to planet Earth and is heading straight for it and that everyone on Earth knows that they've only got 24 hours less to live. It's a film about depression. It's part of his depression trilogy of which Antichrist was a part and Breaking the Waves, another brilliant Lars von Trier film, was the first film and he himself has said that it was him in the throes of absolute depression. But um, there is hope to be found in this very dark premise and the person that's um, curled up into a ball throughout the film and is unable to um, engage with the world in a meaningful way, she, um, she's G'd along by her sister, uh, Gainsbourg, I can't remember what her first name is now. But towards the end of the film, as this um, planet looms ever larger, unforgettably, on the horizon of the Earth, she's a person that seems to be most fine with everything, and she seems to wake up and become um, a rock for other people, maybe because she is more comfortable with the end of the world than anyone else. So um, it looks great. Uh, all the main roles are good in it, but it's Kristen Dunst's film. And um, she her and her, her sister, um, Gainsbourg, is uh, both magnificent, but it's Dunst who gives an awards-worthy performance that may have been scuppered by the director um, bringing the film into disrepute at the Cannes Film Festival. He was a bit persona non grata after that. I noticed um, his recent film with, I think, Matt Dillon as a serial killer, kind of got attention but not too much but then again he does make very austere often very funny he made nympho after this which was a five-hour film um and broken up into two halves he's had a very good decade as a director i think um but melancholia stands as a work of art um that was an amazing year with tree of life and melancholia were in my top three and that has so much in the way of both being very cerebral looks at humanity and life and, and how you feel. It's just that the tree of life looks at humanity from a more normal perspective and melancholia from a far more extreme perspective, the end of the world and very, very bad depression. But it was a very soulful film as well, um, much less upsetting material than in other Lars von Trier movies, which pushed it towards the mainstream but obviously it didn't make a dime at the box office because it was um, you know, another art house film. It just didn't contain genital mutilation like uh, Antichrist did or unending five hours of sex like Nympho did or the serial killer movie made with Matt Damon was also extremely explicit and, and very upsetting. But in Melancholia, 
if ever a, a film were aptly named, it would be that. It's a beautiful film, and my second favourite film of the decade. I've got a little bit of time, so I might. I'm, I think I missed off a track. I'll play a little bit of this and then get into my number one track of number one film of the decade. This was from. Well, that saved me a bit because I, I obviously don't. Play, I love doing these shows, winging it, and timing fifty films <laughs> to fit into a two-hour period. So I was a little bit ahead of the curve, and I meant to play that all the way back at uh, Captain America's Winter Soldier, as it featured in that film. Marvin Gaye and Troubled Man from the Little Sing film of the same name. And it's part of his list. If you know the Captain America story, you know he has a list. Uh, after he's been asleep for 50 years, he's got a list of um, culturally important things that he uh, must look up, Marvin Gaye being one of them. And did you know those lists are different for each market the film's released in? So the, when they release it in Japan, for instance, it's got references to Japanese culture in the list and so on. So they did lists for various markets around the world. My top 10 films of the decade. Well, I've just done my top 60 albums of the decade and the next two weeks will be my top 50 tracks of the decade. This week has been my top 50 films of the decade. My favorites, I'm not saying they're the best. At 10, Mad Max Fury Road. Sicario at nine. Call Me By Your Name at eight. Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at 7. The Wachowskis' criminally underrated Cloud Atlas at 6. The even more painfully underrated First Reformed at 5. The Big Short, which did get a lot of acclaim, but it hasn't shown up in many lists. I thought it's a just flat-out amazing state-of-the-art filmmaking at 4. And then, bizarrely, my top three from 2011 in reverse. So we had Tree of Life at 3 with uh, Terence Malick. At its finest film, post The Thin Red Line. And Lars von Trier's best film, Melancholia at number two. Which brings us all the way up to my number one film of the decade. And there are a lot of different reasons why I've chosen this. It's another, I think, Dutch director, Nicholas Winding Refn. And the movie Drive is my number one film of the decade. And there are multiple reasons. Um, it's in a way, it's like saying that Train Spotting is um, your favourite film of the '90s or Reservoir Dogs. It was an aesthetic. It was a pure aesthetic that came through music and cinematography, the mood, the performances, all congealed into this amazing whole. My second favourite album of the decade was Chromatics, Kill for Love. And Johnny Jewell, who leads Chromatics and uh, numerous other bands, had about five tracks in the film. All this neon-lit synth music, synth-pop music, and Cliff Martinez made the score which fitted into that and dovetailed, so it sounded incredible. Um, the opening ten minutes is, is one of the best of um, all time, I think. It sets the film up so well. I think, I think one of the reasons, uh, watching it again recently... I was taken by how well he directs the film. He's done other controversial films that I've liked this decade, Neon Demon. I absolutely adored Only God Forgives. Um, but Drive was this crossover moment. It did very well at the box office for what was an art house film that got sued by one person who was expecting to see Fast and the Furious uh, because of the car title and the fact that he was a, a getaway driver. He was a, a mechanic in the day who moonlighted as a getaway driver at night. Um, very much like the film The Driver, uh, which it was heavily based on, but also a lot of those 70s 
thrillers um, as well. Um, I thought the, the like the it looks it feels existential and like it drifts along, but it's actually a tightly wound hard-boiled cop film, a uh, crime drama, which would made a short book um, like I don't know Friends of Eddie Coyle or something like that. The story progresses at a great clip, and the direction of it's superb. The opening is amazing. Um, we get to know exactly who Ryan Gosling's character in the film is, and we go with him on his. Uh, slow motion car chase which is already iconic that opens the film featuring chromatics music over the top as he plays cat and mouse with the LAPD trying to evade them and not doing sliding round corners but often doing things like pulling in and stopping and turning the lights off and then after about 12 minutes um, the song that I'm going to end the show on erupts and this neon pink lettering over the screen with drive over the uh, nightscape of LA appears, and it's just such a well-composed opening. Almost up there with Once Upon a Time in the West and Sergio Leone's uh, opening of that film, it, it tells you everything you need to know, and then there forms a really beautiful relationship. I was a bit rude about Carrie Mulligan's performance at the time, but she's perfectly cast, and the platonic love affair that Ryan Gosling and Kerry Mulligan have is actually really beautiful and soulful. Um, a lot of people complain the second half of the movie lost that by becoming far too violent. I would say that the story progresses at a fair rate of knots throughout the whole film. Um, it, it might seem long in patches due to its um, almost somber mood, but the story continues to progress. There are lots of interesting side characters. Albert Brooks as a very interesting arch-villain in it, a very soulful man who's almost sad at the job he does. Uh, he's brilliant and won a few awards. Uh, Brian Cranston's excellent in it as well, who could be an Eddie Coyle, actually, um, as a sad sack who owns the garage where Ryan Gosling works. Kerry Mulligan is beautifully cast, and her interactions, often silent with Ryan Gosling, are wonderful. It's shot so well. Uh, Ron Perlman's also really good in it. It's got an amazingly good cast. Um, it's directed superbly. When there's action in it, it's sublimely handled. Um, uh, there's only a few car chases, but each one sticks. And um, Ryan Gosling becomes this avenging angel of death as he um, tries to put right what happened, uh, which was no one's fault either. It's almost like a Casablanca setup because Oscar Isaac, who's also superb, turns up in his second amazing film of 2011 after Lewin Davis to make my top 20. Um, when he turns up, he's the um, husband of Kerry Mulligan, but he's been in jail and he's got a surprise release. So it's one of those sort of like Casablanca where there's three people in the relationship, but nobody's really at fault. Um, and the interactions between Ryan Gosling and the husband take on a completely different tone uh, to what you'd expect. It's not... It begins a little bit challenging, but then it becomes this much more soulful example of people getting along. And uh, Ryan Gosling gets sucked into the world that Oscar Isaac's in, but he, Oscar Isaac doesn't have a choice either. So it's quite a sad story, but brilliantly directed. Aesthetically, I thought it set the standard for the decade. The music and the, the look of the film, the feel of the film, I think it's an all-time classic. It's my number one film of the entire decade and it also had the most memorable music of the decade and this is um after that opening 12 minutes where we see ryan gosling pick up his car and then go on a slow-mo car chase across la and then erupts with this track 
from Kavinsky and Love Fox. It wasn't made for the film. It was. It should have been because it so fits the film. And Johnny Jewel had about five different acts in the soundtrack to the film. Uh, and this was actually not one of them. But it leads off the movie. And this is Night Call. And that's my top 50 films of the decade ending with this drive and this track, Kravinsky and Night Call. I will be back with my top tracks of the decade next week. Adios. <laughs>